Today on the New Species Podcast, we're going to talk to someone who studies mammals. Not just any mammals, but woolly flying squirrels in the genus Eupatorus. These squirrels can be over three feet long, have stunning fur coats, and live high in the Himalayan mountains. We'll hear about how one species became three, what makes these animals unique, and what other questions scientists could ask about them in the future. Let's get started. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Patrick. And I'm Zoe Albion, your other co-host. On this podcast, we talk to scientists about their recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to these scientists about how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn how they decided that they were new species and the behind the scenes stories of finding them. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the new species podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Chris Helgen, chief scientist and director of the Australian Museum Research Institute. He's here today to talk to me about his paper in the February issue of the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society, in which he and his co-authors describe two new species of woolly flying squirrels. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure, Zoe. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. What are these woolly flying squirrels? Tell us all about them. Well, it's uh, a lot of it is right there in the name. These are uh, woolly giant flying squirrels. So uh, just imagine this. These are uh, they are. Um, Squirrels, like you might, you know, imagine, think about that maybe, maybe if you have them in your backyard, much, but much bigger. Woolly meaning they have these long, gorgeous, soft, uh, woolly fur. You know, it's just, it's just, uh, these animals, as we're going to talk about, live up in the Himalayan mountains. And so they have to be warm and they have these thick, gorgeous pelts. Um, and that, that, that long fur goes all the way from, kind of the top of the head all the way back uh, off, uh, down the long tail. These are flying squirrels, so they don't really fly. They glide. Mammals uh, like these, like, like these uh, squirrels are gliders. Uh, but what that means is they have these big pieces of skin that stretch out along the sides of their body, off of their limbs and the sides of their body, and those spread out and help form this gliding parachute. And the whole top and bottom of that is filled with this sort of woolly hair as well. So they're very uh, soft, beautiful, kind of gray or brown, uh, extremely large squirrels. If if you um, caught saw one in mid-flight from the tip of its nose to uh, the tip of its tail, it, it might be something like a, a meter long. So these are really quite uh, quite striking animals. Oh, wow. And and what do they do up there in the Himalayas? Well, you know, for, for most of... Uh, of uh, most of, of time, we haven't really known much about what they do. These are, these are uh, among the most mysterious mammals on the planet. And um, that's in part because, like other flying squirrels, these animals are nocturnal. So they're only coming out at night. They're only up at very high elevations in the Himalayas. Um, and they're only found in a few pockets that are mostly pretty remote to humanity along the, uh, the margins of the Himalayas, as, as we'll talk about kind of, uh, both to the, 
west to the east and to the north. And so uh, because of those, they've remained really obscure for a very long time. But we're learning more and more about uh, what they do for a living up there. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about that as we go. They're not very well known. I heard they used to be considered extinct. Well, that's right. And that's often a symptom of uh, being a kind of animal that very few people are studying and uh, and very few people have, you know, ever gone out to look for or learn about in, in depth. So it can be that some species kind of end up with a reputation for maybe being having disappeared or have gone extinct uh, in large part because maybe they aren't recorded in, in literature or in kind of any sort of scientific account for decades at a time or even longer. That's what happened with this squirrel. Um, it was, first came to uh, the attention of science in the late 19th century, and uh, it was from a single specimen that came back from what's now modern-day Pakistan. So it, it originally got named in 1888, and this is uh, this is an area. It's in the very far north of Pakistan, so it's up in these these high elevations where sort of Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, China, and India all come together on the margins of the Himalayas. And so um, uh, it was very, after it was first discovered, zoologists took a fair bit of interest in it because. Um, the zoologist that described it, his name was Oldfield Thomas, and he was based at the Natural History Museum in London. He's the one who sort of first received a specimen of this of this animal from the wild, and he had a skull and skin. And again, because it's so beautiful, this thick, thick woolly uh, pelage, we call it the fur, and also its skull looked very different from any other squirrel. Um, one of the ways that was is it has what we call extremely high-crowned teeth. So if you can imagine sort of, you know, a, a, a tooth in a squirrel's mouth, that means it's very high, like from its base to the top of the tooth, it's very high. So they have the very high crowned teeth. And that signals that these animals are eating something that is probably pretty abrasive, you know, pretty hard to process, um, more so than most rodents are eating. Uh, so it was a bit of a mystery at that first moment when it was described. What does this? What is this squirrel? What does it do for a living? Why is it so strange? A few others turned up in terms of landing in scientific in, in museums. Some ended up in museums in in modern day India, like in Bombay and Calcutta. One ended up in a, a museum in the Netherlands. But the story is basically that we only had these few scattered records. Very few scientists ever came across this animal. And then from the very early 20th century, there were essentially no records uh, uh, for most most of the 1900s. Uh, and so that's why it gained a reputation for being so little known that maybe, maybe it had even disappeared. So you decided to, to look into it. So what did you do? Where did you go? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I should say uh, this this squirrel got a burst of attention in the mid 1990s uh and i think it was i think it was 1994 i remember it because uh i was a i was a kid at the time i was a teenager and uh i started i was reading it in i grew up in in minnesota just in the north edge of the twin cities area and i was reading it you know it's a kind of story that went around the world and even in everybody's uh local city papers and so i was reading it 
And a, a gentleman named Peter Zoller, a zoologist who worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society, was working with colleagues in Pakistan and sort of, quote, rediscovered this species. So scientists hadn't seen it for a long time. He worked with, you know, people who lived in these regions and who knew, knew about it. And they helped him to find and learn that it was still out there, where he could find it. And um, they collected some, some specimens and samples that, um, you know, allowed us to uh, have a few more in museums and start to access DNA from this animal and learn more about it. So this was a, a burst of energy there that proved to the world this animal uh, was still out there. Uh, I took an interest in it uh, because my attention is always drawn to uh, those kinds of mammals. I'm a mammalogist and I work largely as a taxonomist. My attention is drawn to the, those groups of mammals that are um, kind of the blind spots in mammalogy. So the, it, the more obscure it is or the less known or reported about it, that's where I want to focus my attention. And that's because that's where we can often find surprises or you know, sort of just uh, um, make inroads into a really interesting kind of problem. So uh, I, I started working with a, a close colleague of mine, a gentleman named Steve Jackson. I was in the U.S. at the time when I started this project, and he was based in Australia. And he, uh, he got his uh, doctorate years ago studying gliding marsupials in Australia, uh, things like... Uh, uh, sugar gliders and yellow-bellied gliders and greater gliders. We have a range of, in here in Australia, uh, like flying squirrels but completely unrelated, marsupials that have uh, hit on this similar strategy of, of gliding from tree to tree as a really efficient form of, of moving around. So Steve got hooked on gliding mammals and not just the Australian version. He wanted to know as much as he could about all the gliding mammals of the world. And that takes you um, pretty rapidly into the world of flying squirrels, which are the most uh, species diverse group of, of gliding mammals. So he, he put a book together, which was Gliding Mammals of the World, where um, he got a friend of his to uh, do beautiful paintings of every species known. And he developed a sort of uh, a scientific account of each species. And the, the animal that I think captured his attention amongst the flying squirrels most was this, this creature called the woolly flying squirrel. And uh, one thing he noticed was that in the late 1800s, around the time the, the squirrel was first described, there's a notion that it was only ever found in Pakistan, but a specimen that ended up in the Netherlands uh, was labeled as coming from Tibet. Uh, and Tibet is, is, you know, wherever it is in Tibet uh, is quite a distance uh, in, in many ways geographically and, and biogeographically from the particular area of Pakistan where this was from. So he started to realize there could be populations of this squirrel in a number of places. And when he dug around, too, he found that uh, a Ph.D. student who uh, came from China but was studying in the U.S., um, had gotten some DNA samples that seemed to be woolly flying squirrels, but came from a different place entirely again, which was um, southern China in the province of Yunnan, which again was another uh, several thousand kilometers from the area where the, the squirrel was first found in Pakistan. So what was happening is Steve and I were looking at this and we're starting to realize there's just little bits of information that show that, you know, this wasn't just a, a species from northern Pakistan that disappeared from sight and had been rediscovered. There is clues that there might be populations of this kind of squirrel stretched across thousands of miles of the Himalayas. And what we needed to do was, you know, get our hands on as much information as possible to try to reconstruct what the range is 
and make comparisons of museum specimens and genetic information to see what we could find out. So that's kind of, that's how the journey started in trying to understand. There were clues that this might not just be one species, and we started to walk down that path. Wow. And so you visited a bunch of museums, you looked at their specimens. Did you collect your own? We visited, so for each of these projects where I revise a genus, my goal, my sort of modus operandi is that I I try to see, if it's an obscure group like this, I try to see every specimen in every museum that exists. <laughs> and that's that, be, wow. that becomes... That becomes a goal as part of these projects, and uh, you know it's it's uh, it can become almost an obsessive quest. And and I think you know this from from talking to people about these these projects with with discovery of new species and using museum material. But uh, they're scattered. They're often scattered to the winds for so many reasons, historical reasons, and for reasons of colonial history and for. Uh, reasons of museums, trading, and all kinds of things. But we found 24 specimens of woolly flying squirrels in all the world's museums. Some were in London, some were in Leiden in the Netherlands, some were in Bombay, a few were in uh, Calcutta, uh, and then a, a few ended up in the, the museum in Florida, Florida Museum of Natural History in Gainesville, from the work that had been done in the 90s trying to document these species. So then there were also... Uh, unstudied and unpublished specimens that we found uh, had landed in some Chinese museums. And this brought us into close contact with uh, collaborators and colleagues in, in China. And that really helped us start to understand what was going on, on in the Chinese side of the border. Not so much in Tibet, where we still remain largely in the dark about what's happening with the species, but in Yunnan, it, further to the east, where uh, uh, this group of, of scientists at the Chinese Academy of Science in particular were working, they were starting to collect specimens on ex expeditions. And perhaps even much more interesting, um, they were also starting to photograph this animal in camera traps on their field missions and expeditions. At the same time, so camera trapping, right, is a technique where you put remote cameras, you know, in, in ha habitat, uh, you leave them there and you basically are trying to observe the animal on its own terms. You know, you're leaving the environment and the camera is, is recording and it'll take a snap or a video when the animal walks by. Uh, and this has been transformative in mammalogy in a lot of ways because mammals by and large are really pretty hard to find. They are secretive. They try to avoid us, right? They, most of them come out at night like flying squirrels do. And so you really, really have to be, uh, you know, clever. There's a lot of people have sort of said that the camera trap is the binoculars of the mammologist. You know, the, the binoculars of the ornithologist is to the camera trap of the mammologist. And they really are the, the best way to observe uh, mammals in the wild. But, and so that's taken off. And not only in China, as we developed this project, so colleagues in uh, India and more recently, more recently Bhutan, uh, have also been uh, snapping pictures of this animal for the first time, woolly flying squirrels. And so not only are these 24 specimens in museums and a handful of DNA samples informing us, but an increasing number of records of pictures of these animals from camera traps, which is wonderful. It's sounding like a big pile of puzzle pieces. And I'm so curious, especially, and, and I want to uh, take a brief second here to just say that mammals do not get described all the time. So this is, this is really impressive, the, the work that you and your team did. How did you put all these pieces of information together and, and figure out it was not just 
two species, but actually there were three species. So two of them new species. Right. Exactly. No. Yeah. Thanks, Zoe. And uh, uh, it is absolutely the nature of these things as they are like puzzle pieces that kind of fall all over the the table. And, you know, that's part of the the thrill and the pleasure and the, the kind of, you know, uh, passion of this work is that you, uh, you know, um, see, try to see through in doing the puzzle to are there coherent patterns that really emerge and crystallize as you start to look at these puzzle pieces. And, you know, as you say, um, mammals are the sort of group of animals where, you know, compared to most, you would expect uh, not as many new species to be turning up. And, you know, uh, I think that when the public thinks about the discovery of species that are out there in the wild, but, you know, haven't really uh, become known to scientists yet, it doesn't surprise them that, that they might be insects living in the canopy, you know, of, of, a, of a tropical rainforest uh, or uh, marine invertebrates that are living down in a deep ocean trench, you know, much deeper than anyone's looked before. Those kinds of things are, are more expected. And uh, but but yes, I think people are taken aback or even um, unaware completely that uh, that there is work going on all over the globe by scientists that still does turn up things like new species of mammals. So it doesn't happen as often as in some things, but it happens more often than you might think. And uh, um, these squirrels are a good example of that. And we can talk about, we can talk about others as well. But I think um, when I talk, when I talk to taxonomists too, you know, sometimes it can become a bit of a bone of contention because, you know, taxonomists, you know, that, that are not mammologists, which are most taxonomists will kind of point at me and say, what, what are you doing? You know, mammals are not a diverse group. If you want to find new species, <laughs> you got to be looking at beetles or, you know, you got to be looking at uh, deep sea organisms or whatnot. And it's true. But I, I, in turn, I say those of us that are interested in this kind of science or this passion of discovery, we should uh, always remember that the majority of life on our planet seems to remain undescribed. And that's everything from microbes up to even the biggest mammals uh, lately almost uh, every year sees the discovery or the description of a, an unknown to science species of whale, even. That's happening almost every wow. year lately. So even the largest organisms on our planet, uh, in the last few years, we've named uh, on my team um, new primates like a large monkey and even more recently a gibbon. It lives in the same area as one of these flying squirrels, a gibbon being an ape being, you know, one of the closest relatives to humanity itself. So the largest species of, of animals on our planet, like whales, those that are our most intimate living relatives, like apes, even amongst groups like that, there's still taxonomic discoveries to be made. So that's one of the things I, I, I love to try to tell people and get people to understand and see, because I think that's quite unexpected to people. And what does it tell us? One thing it tells us is how little we actually know about our natural world, you know, even even now well into the 21st century when uh, our world is a human world that's changing fast from so many human influences and there's an urgency to try to understand as much about this as we can. But back to the puzzle pieces, right? They're scattered on the table and some of them are in Pakistan. There's a few camera tap pictures from India, now Bhutan. There's a couple of old specimens that uh, come from places in Tibet and there's some uh, more recent records that are coming in from southern China in the Himalayan mountains as they stretch into the, the Yunnan province. What we started to realize is that 
they've sort of parceled into three discrete regions of the Himalayas. They're also separated not just by thousands of, of kilometers, but also by major dissected river valleys and the like. So, you know, these are long, probably very, very long isolated um, areas. And we, we demonstrated that too by getting DNA from each of these three quite isolated regions where the squirrel occurs. So having some genetic information showed us that there was, you know, uh, many millions of years of evolution that separated the squirrels inside this group and many more, again, that separated this genus overall, the woolly flying squirrels from any other kind of flying squirrel. So we have an old isolated branch on the flying squirrel family tree uh, that's diverged into three sort of uh, uh, twigs at the very end. And those are these three populations we've found. So it's not just that they're genetically different. We also wanted to find out, are there ways that we can use their anatomy to, to tell them apart as well? These are cool animals. They're such cool animals. And you and your team picked some really interesting names for them. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why you chose those names? Yeah, sure. So I should say the um, the original um, species was was named again as a, a genus back in the 1880s. So Eupatorus, uh, and Cinereus was was the original name applied. So referring to the um, rich, warm colors of this woolly fur that the animal has, we needed. Uh, ultimately, we showed we could we could tell them apart. We could tell their teeth and their skulls apart. Uh, their DNA showed a long history of divergence, and so it we came to the conclusion. Uh, because that was the case that they, they that we did need to name these two other populations as new species not not new in in the sense that uh you know that they were uh just emerged and and sprouted out of the earth uh, on the spot they'd been there for millions of years of course and uh, uh we were just the first scientists to sort of diagnose those distinctions um it for the tibetan species um what we really know about it is from uh, a specimen, specimen from the 1870s, actually, that it was largely overlooked in a museum in the Netherlands, in Leiden, Naturalist Museum. And uh, some specimens that came from a uh, bazaar or market in a, a Tibetan town in the early 1900s, when an a English uh, surveyor passed through, he recognized these squirrels as something very different than anything he'd seen. He um, collected their skins for the, the, the Natural History Museum in London. That's pretty much all we know about the kind of hard evidence of that species, those, those handful of specimens from uh, a very long time ago. More, what we're learning now is a little bit more, again, with camera traps, and we're sort of trying to flesh out the range of that species try to know more about it. You know, is it rare? Is it endangered? Um, is it found in protected areas? Things like that. And th it was a bit of a no-brainer on this one. We thought um, this is the Tibetan species. Um, the Tibetan plateau is just, you know, so it's the, it's the, it's the, along with the Himalayas, the roof of the world there. It's spectacular. And so we named that species Eupatorus tibetensis, um, tying, you know, the occurrence on the, that incredible plateau on the edge of the mountains um, to the name of the animal. Um, for the uh, for the, the the Yunnan species, our Chinese colleagues, it was really theirs to pick the name. They had been the the, the group that um, had found everything out about this species and had collected the specimens that helped us all do this work and understand that that the the southern Chinese animal was again a different species. One of the places where that species had been found is a a pretty kind of famous 
locality, you know, in, in Chinese geography and in Chinese uh, literature. And it's called Snow Mountain, you know, so it's a, a spectacular kind of uh, locality in, in Yunnan at the, the Himalayan margin. And so um, we chose the name uh, Eupatoris Niva Mons, Niva being um, um, snow and Mons being mountain. So the name really just uh, directly sort of acknowledging uh, this really important locality. And so um, that species is, is uh, almost paradoxically the one that the one we most realized existed at all, uh, but it's the one we now know most about because our, our colleagues, including a young man named Chuan Lee, who's uh, led this work, uh, has uh, been the one out in the field uh, with his team recording new places where we didn't realize it occurred, new localities, uh, elevations where we didn't know it occurred, uh, information about the vegetation it lives in, information about what its predators are. Uh, and camera trap pictures and, you know, that are helping to understand its activity patterns and other aspects of its biology. So um, those are the three species, Cinereus, Tibidensis, Nivimons. And uh, as, of, as of now, they have their names coined. And I always say, you know, this is the starting point, right? When, uh, you know, by giving creatures like these names and, and really establishing establishing what what they are, their basic identity, how distinct they are from anything else. That's one of the first steps in learning anything more about them, including figuring out how to protect them. I want to say one more thing, and that is uh, I, I've neglected to tell you uh, what's been learned so far that helps explain why they have such strange high crown teeth. And, and, and uh, it's been a uh, a mystery kind of what do these things do for a living and it's not it's not us that have solved it it's been a, a, a variety of people who've looked at this squirrel including Peter Zoller who uh, uncovered its, its its continuing existence that hadn't become extinct back in the 90s but uh, one of the things that's emerged about this species from uh, observing it seeing what plants it's eating seeing what habitats it's living in and looking especially at it's scat. It's, it's poop. Looking at its poop and seeing what it's eating. Um, this species may largely specialize on eating pine needles or this group of species. Pine needles. And so it's up in these very cold, very remote places up in the Himalayas. Not too much for an animal, maybe of this size, to eat. And pine needles, if you can imagine that's largely what you ate, that's got to be a tough, a tough go, right? These, those things are really reinforced with you know, uh, complex, smelly, toxic compounds, um, and and there's not a lot of nutrition to them. It would be very, very much like eating something like eucalyptus, you know, like a koala-specialized diet. So we're talking about a hyper-specialized uh, diet. Probably the animals eat some other things too, but that might be one of their go-to resources, capitalizing on something that other species haven't really been able to learn or, you know, adapt to digest. So um, that's something that I think uh, offers a really cool avenue for future work is, you know, looking at the adaptations of the animal. We know the teeth are uh, very unusual and huge and very complicated in their surface features to allow this animal to grind up something like that. But what does its digestive system look like? We have no knowledge about that yet. And how, how does its genome work in tandem, uh, you know, with what it's eating to sort of detoxify the compounds in these plants. We've learned more about that in things like giant pandas specializing on bamboo or koalas specializing on 
hard to eat leaves or uh, wood rats in the United States eating certain kind of southwestern vegetation that's really hard to eat. There's a lot to learn ahead, I think, about how this animal uh, makes its living up in these mountains and, uh, you know, how its, its fantastic adaptations um, have, you know, given rise to its, its lifestyle in these uh, hidden away places. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Chris, and continue to find out about some really large squirrels. <laughs> You're welcome, Zoe. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I will keep solving these these puzzles that grab a hold of my attention, <laughs> and I'll talk to you again sometime, I hope. Absolutely. I'm glad to hear it. Chris Helgen's paper, Across the Great Divide, Revision of the genus Eupatorus, Sairidae, Petromyini, the woolly flying squirrels of the Himalayan region, with a description of two new species, is in the February issue of the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. See the episode details for a link to the paper, and to learn more about Chris and his work, check out the episode notes for more information. Be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter, at Podcast Species, and like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash new species. And if you'd like to support the work we do, you can find us on Patreon at patreon forward slash new species podcast. And if you have questions or feedback about this podcast, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter at podcast species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash new species podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. <laughs>